Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Firm Returns podcast. Today we're going to have a look at a write-up I did on Aviva, which is a UK life insurance company. So let's have a look. So let's start with the company overview. Oh well, First of all, I'll just mention, uh, when did I write this? This was, this went out November 6th, 2022. So just to give you a, an idea of the date. I think this was the first one I put out on uh, this new platform, which I'm using ghost.io. Right, let's have a look. So Aviva is a UK headquartered insurance company with a historic with a history extending back over three centuries. It is listed on the main market of the London Stock Exchange and a member of the FTSE 100 index with a market capitalization of circa 12 billion pounds. Aviva's main business segments are UK and Ireland life, UK and Ireland general insurance, Canada general insurance and Aviva investors. The figures used in the following breakdown of these business segments are taken from the latest annual report for the year ending 31st of December 2021. So we're going to go through a breakdown of the segments now. Um, so it's just worth mentioning there that the uh, the business now has operates mainly in three core markets, which are the UK, um, Ireland, and Canada. So that was those were the countries mentioned in those business segments there. Right, so the largest segment is UK, UK and Ireland life, which generated cash remittances of £1.22 billion in 2021, out of a total of £1.66 billion, uh, billion from continuing operations, or 73%. Aviva is the, the UK's largest life insurer with a 25% share of the UK market, equating to 11 million customers. Within UK and Ireland, within UK and Ireland life are the following product categories savings and retirement this includes workplace pensions uh, and we've got so a few key facts here so like the Aviva is the largest workplace pensions provider in the UK with 23,000 corporate clients and 4 million members these pension schemes are, are largely sold through intermediaries uh, also within this category are retail pensions uh, these are primarily sold through external advisory firms, but also internally by Aviva Financial Advisors. And we have um, also within this UK and Ireland Life segment are uh, the annuities and equity release. And this is broken down into bulk purchase annuities, individual annuities and equity release. So with the bulk purchase annuities, currently Aviva is the second largest provider behind, behind uh, LNG, legal in general, in the UK market, estimated to be worth £2 trillion, of which only 10% has been captured. So in the individual annuities market, uh, Aviva is the largest UK provider with over 1 million customers. And in the equity release, it manages the UK's largest book of equity release mortgages, some of which have been securitised and sold on. So uh, finally, the final sort of seg uh, component within the UK and life segment is uh, protection and health. 
So individual, and this is further broken down into individual protection, which is what you traditionally think of as life insurance, group protection and health insurance. So in the individual protection segment, we've got the second largest, uh, Aviva being the second largest provider in the UK, and it's sold through intermediaries such as financial advisors and also directly to customers. Uh, in the group protection uh, component, it, Aviva again is the second largest provider in the UK, and services include life cover, income protection and critical illness cover. In the health insurance segment, we've got uh, Aviva being the third largest UK provider with over 1 million policyholders. So next we're going to have a look at UK and Ireland general insurance. So UK and Ireland general insurance generated £261 million in cash remittances in 2021, or 15.7% of total remittances. So Aviva is the largest general insurer in the UK and third largest in Ireland, with a combined circa 6 million customers. The combined operating ratio core for the UK and Ireland general insurance was 94.3% in 2021 and in 2020 it was 98.2%. Its products can be divided into the following categories. So first up we've got personal lines um, which is includes core offerings such as home, motor and travel insurance. Um, it has multi-channel distribution so it's sold directly to customers through the MyAviva portal um, as well as listing on price and ca comparison websites PCWs and through intermediary relationships with brokers and several UK banks and in total in personal lines you've got three and a half million customers so there's something to mention here actually uh, with the um, personal lines I actually also um, have switched to using Aviva as a for a few different products so I've used them for my home I now use them as my home insurer um, I now use them as my car insurer as well and I've used them when I went abroad uh, last year uh, for travel insurance and something that's nice is that with this my Aviva portal you can buy all these um, sort of parallel offerings all directly through the same place where you have all the details for your current insurance so and on top of that they give you a 10% discount um, if you do, if you are an existing customer already on one of their product lines, so there's there's real incentives to sort of stay with them, um, and the prices are still very competitive. Like I mean, the reason I went for them initially with the home insurance was because they were the top two uh, cheapest provider or something like that on a price comparison website, and the uh, the cheapest one was did not look like a reputable brand at all. So competitive on price, but also um has that reputation that that draws you if you if you as well as being price conscious if you actually care a little bit about the chances of being paid out for instance so in the uh commercial lines so so yeah we mentioned i mentioned that there's two categories so there's the personal lines and then there's also commercial lines um so this is going to be so the personal lines is basically where you, they're dealing directly with uh, the end customer in commercial lines, they're they're dealing more with businesses providing cover to like a, a whole portfolio of cars or something like that, or whatever other kind of stuff um, on a on a sort of larger commercial scale. So, 
uh, the commercial lines business is divided between the SME business, small and medium enterprises, and the global corporate business, GCS, with both growing at double-digit rates in 2021. Right, um, so now we're going to move on to have a look at the Canada general insurance. So Aviva is the third largest property and casualty, um, which is the term used in Canada for general insurance, um, possibly America as well, uh, provider in Canada, a market itself the eighth largest in the world with estimated gross written premiums, GWP, of 69 billion Canadian dollars. Aviva holds an 8% market share. Cash remittances were 156 million pounds in 2021 or 9.4% of total remittances. And its core uh, combined operating ratio was 90.7% versus 2020's figure which was 94.7%. So just the key point there is that that's actually a better combined ratio than the UK and Ireland general insurance which was 94.3 um, with Canada doing 90.7. 90 so again divided into personal commercial lines and in the Personal, personal lines represented 63% of the overall business mix and again this, these were predominantly sold through brokers and RBC insurance so uh, they're trying to change this uh, position of selling mainly through brokers and RBC insurance by uh, investing in their own digital sales channels like they have in the UK to, to get that sort of direct to customer benefit and cross selling opportunity they have in the UK already the MyViva platform. So in the commercial lines, the SME business makes up 19.2% of the overall business mix. Uh, this is the overall business mix, including the personal lines as well. Um, and global corporate business, the GCS, makes up 18.1% of the overall business mix. And in 2021, growth across the commercial lines was circa 9.7%. So uh, finally, we have Aviva Investors, which manages £268 billion of assets, with £216 billion of this being managed on behalf of the Aviva Group, and it generates cash remittances of £15 million in 2021, and profits before tax of £41 million. The products and customers it serves can be divided into the following categories. Uh, well, just before I get onto that, I just want to make the point that um, so they don't the money they make because they're largely serving the Aviva Group. Um, they're not going to be really targeting. So, like I said, two hundred and sixteen of the two hundred and sixty-eight billion pounds of assets that they manage have been managed on behalf of the Aviva Group. So that's not really. I imagine the profits on a lot of that stuff is going to go down to uh, the life insurance uh, business or the general insurance business and so on um, rather than being attributable to the Aviva investors segment so crucial really all of the revenues the, the actual cash remittances they're going to generate here are going to be coming from the smaller portion that is managing external uh, assets directly for so perhaps for other uh, well, we'll get on to the external clients. So yeah, let's have a look at um, 
the products and customers it serves and principally we've got the uh, as I've mentioned the Aviva client distribution channels and the external client distribution channels so in the Aviva client distribution channels we have the savings and retirement um, so it offers products to Aviva's defined uh, benefit uh, contribution sorry defined contribution pension and saving customers so these are the customers that are paying a fixed amount and they uh, each month or whatever but they're not getting a as opposed to the defined benefit schemes which is more the where the the bulk purchase annuity business comes in um, with Aviva buying the pension liabilities from companies that provide their employees or have in the past provided their employees with uh, defined benefit pensions where they're saying we're going to give you this set amount fixed percentage of your salary maybe inflation inflation adjusted once you retire uh, so in the other client distribution channel um, is going to be the Aviva shareholders so this is where it's providing investment solutions for the bulk purchase annuity and individual annuity funds so in these cases um, they're not providing the, the clients aren't directly getting this is what, the reason why the shareholders are considered the clients here is because the actual holders of the annuities are going to be or, or the recipients of the annuities rather um, have provided funds to Aviva and the way Aviva is making money is by investing those funds and generating a larger return than they are in aggregate across all of the annuity portfolio um, than they are paying out in annuities so that's where the Aviva, Aviva investors comes in for the managing of that and making sure that um, sufficient margin is made for it to be profitable. So in the external client distribution channels, uh, we've got the large asset owners. So these are sort of insurance companies, consultants, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. And then we've also got global financial institutions, which are the large private banks. And we've got UK wholesale intermediaries to retail customers, so e.g. independent financial advisors and wealth managers. So I think, um, Aviva has become quite a a leader in some sort of uh, environmental and sustainable sustainable sort of investment products. So I think there's cases of them offering these products to some other larger funds and so on that want to access these products but don't have their their own offering at the moment. So that's, that's something that they're providing with these sort of to these external clients. This uh, in particular. So something to note is that cash remittances from subsidiaries cancel out on consolidation and hence are not directly reconcilable to the group's IFRS, a consolidated statement of cash flows. In effect, this means that cash payments might be paid to the parent company even if the group as a whole has yet had yet, sorry, even if the group as a whole has had net cash outflows from operations. This was the case in both 2021 and 2020, where the cash flows from operations were both negative. So we'll talk quite a bit about this later on when we address the cash flows properly, because um, this is a bit of an illusion that that effect 
that you're seeing in the in the IFRS um, financial statements. So Aviva had a number of other international subsidiaries which divested in 2020 and 2021 for total proceeds of 7.5 billion pounds. The case for this divestment was to focus the company on its core markets where it holds substantial market share and is most profitable. 1.9 billion pounds of the proceeds was used to repay debts, bringing the the debt leverage ratio down to 27%. A further 4.75 billion pounds was returned to shareholders through a 1 billion pound share buyback program and a, a 3.75 billion pound direct cash payment in order to maintain the share price. A condition uh, sorry, start again. In order to maintain the share price, a share consolidation was undertaken, reducing the share count by 25%. So yeah, they basically gave back a quarter of the company in terms of uh, uh, cash repayments and the and the buyout, the buyback, share buyback. So because the company was, I think the book value of the company is about 20 billion pounds, and they, it's now about 15 billion pounds. So they gave back just shy of. Um, five billion pounds of that so that basically meant that they just reduced the share count by 25 percent to mean that the share price sort of held up and didn't get um didn't tank so um yeah let's have a look the management aims to maintain center liquidity of circa one and a half billion pounds in normal circumstances this represents a year's worth of center costs debt interest and dividend payments Excess liquidity beyond this is available for investment or return to shareholders through dividends and share buybacks. As an insurance company, Aviva is subject to the Solvency II regulations. These include the Solvency Capital Requirement, SCR, which is the amount of capital Aviva is required to hold on its balance sheet to cover its insurance liabilities in a 1 in 200 year catastrophic event. This figure is influenced by both the size of the insurance liabilities and the current level of interest rates, i.e. expected return on assets. As of 31st of December 2021, the SCR solvency uh, capital ratio, sorry, requirement, stood at £9.1 billion, a decrease of £3.7 billion on the previous year, reflecting the business divestments and an increase in interest rates. Another important metric is the shareholder coverage ratio, which is calculated by dividing the shareholder's equity by the SCR value. Also, <laughs> helpfully, shareholder coverage ratio also could be turned into an acronym of SCR, which is a bit confusing. Um, but yeah, SCR is solvency capital requirement, and yeah, and it's used in the calculation of the shareholder coverage ratio. The management of Viva has stated that they aim to target a shareholder coverage ratio of 180% and any capital above this will be available for investment or return to shareholders. Let's go and quit drink. Yeah, so something crucial actually to say with that, um, <clears throat> I mentioned there the shareholder coverage ratio, anything above 180%. They're looking to, uh, well, they've already shown a willingness and they are, uh, with the previous uh, shareholder returns of capital, like the three, well, the 4.75 billion combining share buybacks and dividends they made before, 
um, but there's also they're also looking to potentially do additional share buyback programs or whatever depending on whether it's, the stock is depressed and that makes sense compared to paying dividends um, if it goes above the 180 percent shareholder coverage ratio and it has been for um, since this this period end I think it was something like 220 percent or something like that in their last reported results so there's quite a bit of room there for some for more capital returns all right so let's have a look um, so Aviva is making the following investments over the next couple of years circa 100 million pounds per annum between 2022 and 2024 in internal gross investments expected to boost operating profits by 100 million pounds from 2025 onwards 200 million pounds invested in cost savings expected to yield 250 million pounds per annum cost savings from 2024 onwards and then acquisitions including the now completed purchase of succession wealth a uk-based wealth management and financial advice firm for 385 million pounds this acquisition is expected to yield a double-digit return in the medium term as the financial advice services are offered to Aviva's 6 million pension and savings customers in the UK. So some potential synergies there. The company has announced its intention to pay dividends of £870 million and £915 million in 2022 and 2023 respectively. This equates to 31.5p and 33p per uh, 31.5 pence and 33 pence per share and reverses the dividend cut that occurred during the pandemic. Subsequent mid single digit dividend growth is expected from 2024 onwards in line with growth in profits slash cash flows. So yeah, I think um, they're still hold standing by that guidance that we're going to have the payment of the final we're still waiting for the payment of the full year dividend for 2022 um obviously but uh, that's normally paid in the in the following year uh but yeah everything is still following by the, the guidance they set out there so um <clears throat> let's have a look at the some figures from the balance sheet so in the consolidated statement of financial position for the from the 2021 annual report, total assets were listed as 358, uh, yeah, 358,474,000,000. Sorry, I've got it written here in thousands of millions, so it makes it a bit complicated to read out. But 358,474,000,000 set against total liabilities of 339,020,000,000 pounds leaving total equity of 19 billion 454 million so as previously mentioned a substantial chunk of this equity has since been returned to shareholders uh yeah which is why it's now probably around about 15 billion so the largest items on the asset side of the balance sheet were financial investments of 264 billion 961 million Loans of thirty-eight billion six hundred twenty-four million and reinsurance assets of fifteen billion thirty-two million. So yeah, you can have a look at the report to get that I've written here on my website, firmreturns.com. I'll include it in the uh, in the video description to actually read all these figures. I appreciate they're probably 
it's hard to follow them just listen to them but uh yeah so current assets total 26 billion 624 million of which 12 billion 485 million were cash and cash equivalents so that will be have been reduced quite a bit after the repayment of that of that capital so on the liability side the two largest items were gross insurance liabilities of 122 billion 250 million and gross liabilities for investment contracts of 172 billion 452 million current liabilities totaled 22 billion 945 million so comfortably under the uh, current assets there so we've got a nice current ratio in excess of one so overall the assets and liabilities seem to be well matched by duration with sufficient liquidity to cover near-term liabilities let's look briefly at the the income so after tax the profit from for continuing operations was 336 million pounds in 2020 this was 1 billion 466 million adding the profit for the year for from disc discontinued operations and the profit made on their disposal gave a profit for the year figure of 2 billion pounds and 36 million that sounds a bit weird 2.036 billion pounds and in 2020, 2020 it was 2.91 billion pounds so come down a bit we're also given an adjusted operating profit figure which strips out short-term fluctuations due to changes in economic assumptions the group adjusted operating profit before tax from continuing operations was 1.634 billion compared to 1.806 billion pounds for 2020 so the variance between these two figures can be seen to be much smaller than the net profit from continuing operations so next we have a look at the cash flows and um, I've given here a table of showing the cash flows for the last 15 years from 2007 to 2021 um, I won't read all of them out but you can have a look at them in the article and uh, but I'll just read out what I've written here so cash flows for 2020 and 2021 have been skewed by the investment of the proceeds from the disposal of discontinued operations which was 7.5 billion pounds into financial investments for accounting purposes this is treated as a net payment to the operating businesses causing the cash flow from operations to appear substantially negative as you'll see later on this had the reverse effect in h1 2022 as these funds were disinvested prior to the return of capital to shareholders serving to positively boost the cash flow from operations so that's quite a crucial point the fact that because they sold off all these businesses and then uh gave this money to i guess the aviva investors to which is one of their operation uh, subsidiaries to manage and invest for them temporarily into treasuries or whatever kind of fairly liquid assets to as a hold it somewhere to hold the money um that was counted as a net like payment to their operations which made it look like their cash flow from operations were very negative in 2020 and 2021 in the two years that they were selling off their these assets uh these these business segments 
And then when they had to take that money back out, and so Aviva investors then paid the parent company uh, the money that which was then given to shareholders, that was counted as a, a positive cash flow from operations, a, a very substantial one, uh, of reversing that the two years worth of stuff in, in one um, half, one six month period. So that skewed it the other way. So it just shows you that sometimes these, looking at these figures in this way and not really delving into the notes of them can be quite misleading. So you really do need to read the small print and look at this was just like a little footnote underneath the cash flow statement. And it was only actually on the eight, on the interim report that they really detailed this. I was scratching my head trying to work out why they were so negative um, from the annual report, the 2021 annual report, but it just obviously somebody else had had the same point and probably flagged it up with the management and they'd actually helpfully put a little footnote in saying, this is why um, it had occurred. So and I think later on, I actually include a little a quote of that footnote. So yeah, we'll have a look at that. But I think they're just worth mentioning that at this stage. So if you do look at this table, you see the last couple were quite negative which compares yeah, the, a massive swing compared to the sort of 6.5 billion pounds of ca of cash flow from operations achieved in 2019 for instance all right so let's continue here so as can be seen the cash flows vary quite considerably from year to year but the average over this period was 3.351 billion pounds if you exclude the last two years that could be considered to be last years that could be considered to be exceptional the average figure is 4.227 billion pounds while the recent divestments could be expected to result in lower cash flows from operations in the near term the average figure for the last 15 years may still be representative of expected cash flows moving forwards this is because the business has made both acquisitions and divestments throughout the last 15 years and so has varied in size over this period the remaining operations also represent the core of the business and the and the principal profit center. To get a better picture of the cash flows attributable to shareholders, it is instructive to subtract financing costs such as interest expense and tax from the operating cash flows. This leaves us with the following free cash flows. So yeah, I've uh, done another table here which gives you the a further breakdown of these free cash calculated free cash flows figures so from this calculation of free cash flow we get the total free cash flow for the last 15 years was 28 billion 509 million so substantially more than the current market cap has been returned in the last 15 years and the average for a single year was 1.901 billion excluding the last two years brings these figures to which the last two years which have been quite uh, skewed because of what I was saying um, brings these figures to 35.64 billion and 2.74 billion respectively so that's a massive you know jump if you take away just the last couple of years which together were a negative sort of cash flow combined of over 7 billion um, because of the like I was saying the skewing effect 
So let's just have a look. So I've given here a brief note on the H1 2022 results. So this is yeah go, going to break down and go through the interim results here. So for the for the first half of 2022. So group adjusted operating profit was 829 million pounds, an improvement on H1 2021, where the Comparative operating profits for con from continuing operations were £725 million. However, an overall loss was reported for the period of £633 million. The dis this disparity came substantially from short-term fluctuations in the return on investment for non-live business of £1.08 billion and investment variances and economic assumption changes for the life business of 537 million pounds. While this loss does not reflect the underlying profitability of the op of the business operations or the cash flows they generate, it does reduce the equity attributable to shareholders. So yeah, it's largely fluctuations in the uh, in the variances in the assets and valuations and these are not actually cash flow changes so as of 30th of june 2022 total equity came to 14.401 billion pounds down from 19.454 billion pounds at 31st of december 2021 principally due to the return of capital to shareholders during this period of this total, £252 million belongs to non-controlling interests and £496 million is attributable to the owners of the 6.875% fixed rate yeah, fixed rate reset perpetual restricted tier 1 contingent convertible notes oh, that's quite a mouthful that one issued during the period. These notes convert to ordinary shares on the occurrence of a trigger event which relates to own funds falling below the SCR of uh, falling below the SCR by a given amount or for a certain period of time. While these notes are in all other respects no different to the rest of the company's subordinated debt, their convertibility means they are treated as equity. So yeah, that's just a little note for those notes that were those notes that were issued there. Um, yeah, so being convertible on if the SER went below 100%, which is considering it's up over 200%, is uh, pretty unlikely. So SER decreased from £9.1 billion to £7.7 .7 billion between 31st of December 2021 and 30th of June 2022. This coincided with a reduction in own funds from 20. 2.2 billion pounds to 19 billion pounds so own funds includes um, the debt as well meaning the shareholder coverage ratio or, or rather that yeah the yeah it includes the debt because that's effectively the capital that's owed to external uh, entities not the shareholders of the business but that's is included when it comes to insurance liabilities the debt holders still stand to lose um, before the insurance uh, policyholders so this decrease meant that the shareholder coverage ratio dropped from 244% to 234% 
there is expected to be a further reduction in own funds of £1.6 billion when accounting for planned debt repayment and the acquisition of succession wealth. This would bring the shareholder coverage ratio down to 213%. So it's still substantially above their target, um, as I say here. So this is still significantly above the 180% target, leaving room for further investment and return of capital to shareholders. The board has stated that they anticipate commencing a new share, buy by, uh, share buyback program in 2023 following the publication of the 2022 four-year results. Cash flows from operation, sorry, cash flows from operating activities before tax were 6.148 billion pounds compared to 517 million pounds for H1 2021 and negative 2.554 billion pounds for full year or financial year uh, 2021. So this dramatic difference is helpfully explained in a footnote which also goes some way to explaining why 2021 and 2022 both had negative cash flows from operations. So this is what I was referencing before. So it reads as follows. Cash flows from operating activities in the 12 month period ended 31st of December 2021 and in the six month period ended 30th of June 2022 include impacts from the investment of proceeds from the disposal of discontinued operations into financial investments during 2021 and subsequent disinvestment from those financial investments in the six-month period ended 30th of June 2022 ahead of the return of capital to ordinary shareholders. This activity is reflected as an increase in cash generated from operating activities in the six-month period ended 30th of June 2022 and in 2021 a reduction. So as mentioned before, the operating cash flows were substantially reduced on paper by the investment of the disposal proceeds and then boosted by their subsequent disinvestment. Cash remittances from operations for the period were £798 million. This is down from the same period the previous year, which had, uh, so H1 2021 had £1.052 billion, primarily due to cash being held in operations in 2020 during the uncertainty around COVID and then released in 2021. So it's got a little, 2021 got a boost there because some extra cash was held in the operations just in case payouts or whatever were needed. So center liquidity reduced to 2.735 billion pounds following the capital return and share buyback and loss for the period. Finally, IFRS net asset value NAV was 480 pence per share as of 30th of June, or £4.80 per share, as of 30th of June 2022. This is calculated by, div by dividing the equity attributable to shareholders of £13.653 billion, pounds, um, which is when you subtract that £252 million pounds, um, out to the uh, other non-controlling entities uh, by the number of ordinary shares outstanding. Uh, oh yeah, and sorry, there's another 496 attributable to that. The owners of that fixed rate um, convertible convertible bonds. So. Let's have a look. Da, da, da. 
yeah so divide that 13.653 billion pounds figure by 2.8 billion pounds which is the number of shares outstanding so yeah that gives you the four pound 80 per share for nav so just to give you some context the share price now is four pound 40 so it's closed up quite a bit i think when i wrote this it was like three pound 75 three pound 80 something like that so it's closed up a bit but still it's uh yeah i know we'll get onto valuation stuff later but as a multiple of a free cash flow that they've been able to achieve over that period i mean when you factor in the yeah well, we'll get onto that later but anyway so let's just have a quick look at management so uh before i die, just gonna have a quick drink So management, uh, the few years prior to 2020 were quite turbulent for management with a number of executive changes after relatively short tenures. Since mid 2020, the situation has stabilized somewhat with the exception of the departure of Jason Windsor, the CFO since 26th of September 2019 in July 2022. Charlotte Jones, the previous CFO of RSA Insurance PLC is being brought in to replace Jason with effect from 5th of September 2022. The current CEO, Amanda Blanc, was appointed to the board as a non-executive director on 2nd of Jan 2020 and then CEO on 6th of July 2020. Amanda has spent much of her career working in the insurance industry. She started as a graduate at one of Aviva's legacy companies, Commercial Union PLC, and has since progressed through a variety of roles including a number of senior executive positions at companies such as AXA and Zurich Insurance Group. George Colmer, the current chair of the board, was appointed to the board as oh, sorry, appointed to the board as a non-executive director on 25th of September 2019 and became chair on 27th of May 2020. George has a wealth of experience gained from holding senior ex executive positions at a number of banking and insurance companies, including Lloyds Banking Group PLC, RSA Insurance Group PLC, and Zurich Financial Services. It's quite a few uh, people from RSA Insurance in prior history, uh, prior careers. So, I think the board and executive team have done a good job of steering the company through the pandemic while simultaneously carrying out significant divestments. They have also made significant capital management decisions that have been well aligned to the interests of shareholders. This has included the return of £4.75 billion of capital to shareholders from the proceeds of business disposals through share buybacks and direct cash distributions. It's also worth noting that there may have been some influence from activist investors on the size of the return of capital. Sevian Capital, which built up a stake of 5% in 2021, was an outspoken proponent for a return of capital following the business disposals. Yeah, so there perhaps was an impact there, but it's largely I've been I've owned the company since. 2020 now, and I've and I've been held it through all of this period of divestment, and I've at every turn I've I've liked the uh, the stance of Amanda Blanc and the the other management um, going through it. It's something. I mean, this is not really to do with the investment, but something that's quite unfortunate was there was a 
the AGM, I believe it was the 2022 AGM, so last year, uh, it was quite unfortunate. Some of the uh, men, female, uh, sorry, male uh, fund managers and bigwigs in the city of London decided to crack a few female-related jokes at Amanda Blanc, like um, wishing looking for somebody to be wearing the trousers and all that kind of like standard derogatory um, stuff unfortunately just just not the kind of stuff you expect to hear at any kind of an AGM like that you thought we'd, we'd progressed with our times but apparently not so I mean George Colmer the chairman of the board was really quite furious and you could you could tell that but um but just generally yeah, it's, it's quite sad to see that kind of reaction to to a female CEO's, I believe is doing a, a really good job here, you know. And I mean, that side doesn't deserve that kind of treatment. But in this, in this case in particular, I mean, I think she's doing a much better job than her male predecessor, um, and and a, a string of them before that. So uh, yeah, just a, a sad little tangent there to hear that, that kind of thing is is happening in this day and age still. So um, let's have a look at. But yeah, like I say, it's, it's nice to see that they're showing up the board with um, CFO being a, a woman as well. So it's uh, it's nice to see, nice to see that. Anyway, um, so valuation and, and investment case. There are two main ways I would approach valuing Aviva. The first is by looking at its book value or equity attributable to ordinary shareholders. As of 30th of June, 2022, this stood at thirteen point six five three billion or f- pounds, or four pound eighty pence per share. This theoretically represents the cash shareholders would receive were the business to be liquidated. While this gives you some idea of your downside protection, it is subject to short-term fluctuations in the value of assets and liabilities, as we saw with the six hundred and thirty-three million pound loss for H one twenty twenty-two. It also doesn't reflect the value generated by the business operations. For this, I think cash flows offer a better avenue for valuation. So something I will um, say here is when I first bought the company, it was trading at something like 0.6 times book value, maybe 0.5. Um, I bought it for £2. The, uh, the cheapest price I bought it was £2.65 pence a share right in the at the key time when they cut the dividend and it was all you know all the uncertainty of the pandemic they didn't know what the insurance claims were going to be and all that kind of stuff i just thought if the dividend does come when i looked at it, i thought if the dividend does come back then it's the yield on the dividend is going to be like i think at that point it was close to 15 percent or something crazy like that at the um the share price so well maybe like 12 percent or something it just was just was a crazy crazy valuation so I just thought there's a plenty of margin of safety there just on the book value basis um, and I think I continued buying it up to uh, at that early position I also managed, I bought some up and around about the three pound mark but I've since bought it um, I've since added to the my position around about the time they were doing the divestment so around about the three pound 75 to four pounds a share sort of price range um and possibly even some at four pound around about the current price four pound 20 to four pound 40 
Uh, but yeah, that, we'll get on to. Yeah, I potentially believe there's still quite a bit of upside from here, but perhaps not as much as there was when I bought it at sort of below three pounds a share. But anyway, let's have a look at the. Um, so as I said, so for this, I think cash flows offer a better avenue for valuation. So cash remittances are important as they represent the funds available for paying dividends and reinvesting in the business. However, like profits, they are somewhat arbitrary as they depend on management decisions around reserve requirements, as we saw for the art from the artificial boost in 2021, as reserves held in 2020 were released. This is like a this is a common thing you get, and you get it in banking as well when they hold back like loan provisions and stuff like that for all their expected losses they're going to be getting. In, in the next period because they think it's going to be a downturn or whatever and that means they don't end up having to perhaps pay as much tax as they would have done if they'd they, I mean it's prudence as well um, obviously they are, they've got these loan provisions and stuff but or in this case holding money back for insurance claims and stuff it's a prudent thing to do but it does mean they sort of defer their taxes to a later period when they then do release that, that money so it's a bit of a accounting trick I think a lot of financial institutions play but it, also, arguably an element of prudence in there, so you, you, it's hard to pin them down on it, but it does cloud the picture anyway of what the actual underlying business is, is doing. So for a better picture of cash generated slash used by the business, oper the business operations, we need to look at cash flows from operations, which after taking into account financing costs and taxes, gives us the cash flows available to shareholders. As we've seen in the figures from 2020, 2021 and H1 2022, the cash flows from operations can vary considerably from year to year and be skewed by exceptional items such as business disposals. Therefore, it serves, as, it serves us to average this figure over an extended period as I did above with data going back to 2007. From this analysis, I arrived at an average figure of £1.901 million, including 2020 and 2021, and £2.744 billion when excluding these years. Given that 2022 is likely to be reversely skewed in, uh, sorry, reversely skewed to 2020 and 2021, and thus cancel out their negative impact, it seems reasonable to say the average should be a little higher. However, to be prudent and to make it a nice round number, let's say the business is generating cash flows for shareholders of circa £2 billion per year. With shareholder equity of £13.65 billion, this cash flow represents a return on equity of circa 14.6%, or with the current market cap of circa £2 billion, a free cash flow yield of circa 16.7%. This yield provides a considerable margin of safety against negative events and given the management's positive stance on returning excess capital to shareholders, plenty of scope for increased earnings slash dividends per share and capital, uh, sorry, a capital appreciation from share buybacks. There is also plenty of room for organic business growth through reinvestment and inorganic business growth through targeted acquisitions like that of succession wealth. So we shouldn't only expect this cash flow figure to remain static or decline. So on the topic of sort of acquisitions there, something I do like about 
Amanda Blanc and I think the strategy that she's put in place of divesting all these non-core assets and so on is that it's a much more disciplined and focused approach and it's it really and something that perhaps a lot of male CEOs in particular fall victim to is this they fall prey to the idea of empire building and we've seen quite a lot of financial companies in the UK fall to this like all of the big banks Lloyds um, Royal Bank of Scotland and all sorts you know which now is sort of NatWest and Halifax all these kind of big banks that got way over their skis and expanded out and I think I think RBS at one point was the world's biggest bank in terms of assets just absolutely crazy numbers and it just was not sustainable at all and when we had the financial crisis it all came crumbling down and I mean this just really was a case of um, this this kind of thing is 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 a risk that comes from having CEOs with big egos and doing a lot of empire building so it is nice to see uh, Amanda Plunk being as far as I can tell a uh, very much a low ego type of CEO prudent conservative with her approach but equally and really focusing on shell returns to shelters not focusing on how big can I grow the business and how big can I make my conversation package so yeah it's a uh, definitely um, something to I've learned to factor in when you're thinking about it's definitely a crucial component when looking at management and, and a business sort of generally so I just give a rundown here of the uh, the risks as I see them quite quite a bit um, but let's just have a look let's run through these quickly so as an insurer Aviva is in the business of assuming and managing risk on behalf of their customers each business segment is exposed to its own set of risks some of which are common across the company and others that are specific to that business segment this provides some diversification within the group's overall risk exposure Life insurance, which is the largest business segment, is exposed to two principal specific risks, longevity risk and mortality risk. The former affects the annuity business as it means customers are living longer than expected and so receiving payments for longer than originally accounted. While this risk has a big impact on the business, longevity is closely monitored and tends not to, signif to change significantly in the short term. Mortality risk is the opposite of longevity risk and affects the life protection business. Any increase in mortality and subsequent increase in life protection payouts would at least partially be offset by gains from the annuity business, assuming there was some crossover between the demographic groups for each product. So yeah, a real benefit of providing businesses that gain in, in two different directions. One gains from people living longer, one gains from people living, living shorter. Um, so general insurance similarly has its own specific risks these relate primarily to loss events fire flooding etc and inflation the former adds an element of psychicality to Aviva's profits as there may be spikes in the number of events in some years and then quiet periods in others the key to mitigating this risk is to hold sufficient capital to cover extreme periods with increased loss events Capital requirements are specified by regulators, and Aviva has a substantial surplus above these required levels. If loss events appear to be occurring with increasing frequency, premiums can be adjusted accordingly. 
This is a benefit of policies typically renewing on an annual basis. Yeah, so this is a bit of a difference between sort of life insurance, which often is you get an annuity locked in and that's then for a longer, a much longer period or these kind of long-term things that you don't, you're not getting increases, it's not renewing every year, you're not getting extra premiums coming in every year. And then the general insurance, which as long as the, as long as you can keep on top of the costs in one year, you can then re recoup some and, and raise the prices, raise the premiums the next year to, to recoup some of those costs that you that have increased without too much impact. So the maximum would be a year effectively of incurring a higher cost before you can start to charge it. So I think, um, yeah, I mentioned a bit in the next one. So inflation risk comes from periods where the price of fulfilling a claim, repairing a car, house, etc., rises rapidly, possibly to the point that the aggregate cost of the claims exceeds the initial premiums. This is something that can again be mitigated by holding sufficient liquid capital. Ultimately, the premium prices will be adjusted to reflect these increased costs, but there may be a lag period where losses are incurred. This will be limited to the relatively short duration of general insurance policies. As I was saying, health insurance is exposed to morbidity risk and medical expense inflation. Morbidity relates to the proportion of customers falling sick and is generally mitigated by close monitoring of disease frequencies amongst the population and carefully worded policies. Medical expense inflation carries the same risks and warrants the same mitigation strategies as general insurance expense inflation. Risk, risk common to all business segments and the group at large include credit risk, liquidity risk, market risk, operational risk and conduct risk. So we'll um, have a look through some of these in a sec. Let's go and have another drink. So Aviva is exposed to credit risk on its portfolio of corporate bonds and other debt instruments. Defaults above a certain level would jeopardize the company's ability to cover its liabilities and thus the solvency of the business. The company mitigates this risk primarily through diversification, which limits its exposure to any one company or industry. It also weighs, sorry, it also weights the majority of its debt holdings towards investment-grade securities, further decreasing the risk of loss. As touched on in the segment-specific risks, the company protects itself from liquidity risk by ensuring it has sufficient capital in the form of cash and liquid assets to meet expenses under extreme conditions. This is an area that is heavily regulated and so there is little scope for imprudence on the part of management. As the majority of the company's assets are publicly listed, they are, they are exposed to the fluctuations of the market. These fluctuations constitute the company's market risk and can, be, and can affect its ability to cover its liabilities as they become due. Some of these fluctuations in asset values are offset by similar movements in the value of liabilities. This is the case, for example, with investment contract liabilities that don't have guaranteed returns. Where a decrease in asset values has been caused by a rise in interest rates, this also has the positive effect of decreasing the value of long-term insurance liabilities, the present value of which is calculated using a discount rate based on the market rate.
there is also the potential for asset values to be adversely affected beyond the extent of offsetting movements in the value of liabilities. To manage this risk, the company endeavours to match the duration of fixed assets with their corresponding liabilities, thus removing the need to sell the assets before they mature. In addition, the company also employs hedging strategies aimed at further reducing exposure to market risks. To similar effect, the company makes use of reinsurance to remove certain liabilities from its balance sheet. Reinsurance also helps to protect against other risks mentioned and is used where company, the company does not see sufficient reward for the risk it is taking onto its balance sheet. While I'm discussing risk, it is worth mentioning some of the recent events we've seen in the UK gilt market and subsequent events this had, a sub subsequent effects this had on the UK pension industry. Markets took flight after the, pub after the publication in September of a fiscal statement by the UK government that was deemed to contain spending commitments that would require unsustainable levels of additional borrowing. I won't dwell on the fiscal statement itself or the political fallout, but the, the economic effect was to cause a drop in the value of the pound and a sharp rise in the yield of go government debt, which I, uh, I benefited from by buying some, uh, some gilts when they were depressed. Some gilts when they were depressed. It was this sharp rise in gilts and corresponding fall in gilt prices that triggered a crisis in the UK pension industry. The decreasing interest rates of the last few decades left many pension funds unable to meet their liabilities with the reduced yield available on fixed assets. Some addressed this deficit by moving a portion of their funds into higher yielding but higher risk assets such as stocks, lower grade debt and other alternative assets such as real estate and infrastructure. Many more stuck with government and investment grade bonds, investment grade corporate bonds, but applied leverage through LDIs and other instruments to synthetically boost their yield. When the price of UK gilts, which were being used as collateral, fell sharply, the pension funds received margin calls and became forced sellers of the same gilts as they struggled to find sufficient cash to cover their positions. Ultimately, the Bank of England stepped in and started buying these bonds on the market, stabilising their price and preventing a downward spiral taking hold. Had it not done so, a large number of UK pension funds would have become insolvent, with many British people losing some or all of their pension. Aviva uses derivatives to protect against movements in foreign exchange, interest rates, and the value of equities. There, let me just have a look. Yeah, so just a key point with that that pension stuff is it's it's largely affecting the individual like corporate schemes, which were all signed up to these these things. And I think um, insurers like the big the big insurers like. Uh, life insurers like Aviva and Legal in general were, were fairly protected against this thing and didn't really recognise any major major effects from it. So yeah, they were they were well covered on that front. It was largely the the smaller. Well, I think something like still like ninety percent of companies in the UK have the individual corporate schemes or something like that, um, defined benefit schemes on on their books, which suddenly were. We're suffering from this um but actually i mean i think i don't know about aviva but i know legal in general actually sells some of these 
leveraged uh, instruments to as a, they have as a league in general even though it's a live insurer has quite a lot more of a financial services arm uh, selling these kind of leveraged instruments and so on and um, they manage I think over a trillion uh, pounds worth of assets compared to Aviva's 268 billion or whatever so it's, yeah, it's quite a bigger quite a, a bigger sort of asset management business with legal in general um, but yeah one of the products they provide is this and they didn't actually have any risk themselves but effectively they were having to work with some of their clients to try and prevent them uh, getting into trouble because I think they then actually pass on the they, they, they're effectively a broker for it I think they're setting up these deals with so they, they're not even there holding the the bag and being the one liable if the uh, the pension funds become insolvent or anything uh, that was that would be the the people they connected them up the actual lenders they connected them up with but yeah just an interesting sort of side tangent there so anyway, let's uh, go back to it. So Aviva uses derivatives to protect against movements in foreign exchange, interest rates, and the value of equities. They recognize derivative assets of £5.734 billion and derivative liabilities of £5.763 billion in the financial statements for the year ending 31st of December 2021. The net liability from derivatives is lower than this, circa £1 billion, after accounting for collateral pledged. You can see from this that the company has balanced its derivative assets and derivative liabilities so the net exposure is minimal. As noted above, the group has substantial liquid capital which should be sufficient to cover any increases in collateral requirements. So even if they did have some problems because of sudden spikes in the yield on um, and the yield on bonds that they were using as collateral, so therefore the, the actual like price of the bonds going down and then having you got your margin calls there they still have being a life a, li a sort of life insurer that has to have a substantial amount of liquidity and capital they had they had plenty of you would expect they have plenty of uh, liquid capital to cover it so with a lot of the other um, with all these individual company pension schemes and stuff like that they don't have to have this kind of margin um, coverage ratio of sort of 200% or whatever that they that Aviva has um, as these big life insurers have they they only barely need to just be into a surplus effectively of their pension schemes that's pretty much the only re requirement and otherwise it's just the any deficits are the responsibility of the the company the parent company to pay with these uh, sort of corporate schemes so attributable to the shareholders of the of that corporation um, so let's have a look. So, as a large life insurer, Aviva has the resources to manage these risks where smaller corporate pension managers may not. This recent market volatility could provide a tailwind for Aviva's bulk purchase annuity business as companies look to remove pension liabilities from their balance sheets and therefore prove to be a net benefit to Aviva. So, yeah, I mean, that's another another good point is that with this kind of turbulence and these corporate pension schemes, schemes realizing, oh shit. We were exposed to these big fluctuations, and we nearly, it nearly tanked us. Um, it nearly uh, sank us. We're uh, maybe while we're they're now a lot of them because the interest rates are going up. They're now in a pension. They have surpluses on their pension schemes because the the value of the liabilities has dropped uh, 
more than the value of the assets they're holding um, in most cases. Uh, they're now all sitting on a surplus where they haven't had that for years because interest rates have been so low they've been falling into deficits on all these defined benefit pension schemes so now they're in this position where they actually have a surplus now's the time for them to sell them to uh, bulk to, to large um, insurers like Aviva and Legal in general and so on that are can bulk purchase their annuities uh, which is effectively what the effectively what the um, defined benefit is it's, it's effectively an annuity it's a bulk purchasing these and uh yeah taking the risk off the bu the books of these corporations obviously there's a they get a slight they have to pay give up some of their surplus in that's that's where the payment comes from um that's where aviva earns the money they they get some of that surplus so that but the company doesn't have to worry about it turning into a deficit in the future and having to cover it um so yeah, I mean, just I'll just give you the conclusion here, and then which I've written. So in conclusion, Aviva trades at a discount to its book value and an attractive multiple of its average cash flows for the last fifteen years. It is well equipped to withstand short-term market volatility, which has produced paper losses that belie the continued strong performance of its business operations. This creates an opportunity for investors willing to look through negative sentiment and purchase a market-leading company at a discount price. So yeah, I mean, where am I with this investment? So yeah, it's um, for me, I'm using it. So I, my general sort of requirement for anything I'm investing in is I want to see the potential for fifteen percent, um, an IRR of sort of fifteen percent. I want to be getting sort of fifteen percent a year from it. Um, go forward. That's my my cost of capital discount rate. So. Aviva with their free cash flow, I think it was like free cash flow yield on the current price, uh, which is now, like I say, it's gone up a bit since then, but it's still around about the 15% mark, 15 to 16%. So it's it's nice, just just fits into my my sort of minimum requirement there. Um, and that's obviously not factoring in any kind of growth um, going forward. That's just on their current valuation. So I, I give them perhaps a bit of leeway as well, because I mean, they pay a they, as we've seen they pay a lot out they have a, a willingness to pay a lot out to shareholders but generally I'm kind of seeing it as a I mean it's been the company's been around for almost 300 years so it's a a very enduring business in the life insurance and just of general insurance especially when you get to this kind of size with this kind of ex experience and um, it's something I'm you. I'm seeing as a bit of a backbone to my portfolio. I'm not expecting sort of stellar returns from it. I mean, I've already got really good returns because I bought it at a, a crazily depressed price of sort of below three pounds a share. But um, it's sort of almost fifty, almost fifty percent of its book value. But uh, yeah, I'm not expecting those kind of stellar returns going forwards. But it, I just see it as a good sort of stalwart backbone to my portfolio. To hold it off steady and be a, give, me, give me a good dividend and, and pay me and still pay me, you know, over the long run, I'm expecting 15%. I mean, this stock is, this company, a, a company of this quality on in the FTSE 100, um, trading for below 10, a below a TP of 10 seems, seems to be quite undervalued. So, I mean, there is probably still some upside, but it's not gonna, I'm not expecting it to sort of double from here or anything like that. Um, but I expect it to do well over time. I expect to get a good sort of average annual return from it. So, I mean, 
yeah, it's one I'm happy to hold. I mean, we'll see where the price goes. If it went up to sort of six, seven hundred pen or six, seven pounds a share or something, then maybe I'd start thinking, well, maybe I could put this some I could find them somewhere else to somewhere else fairly solid to put this money. But yeah, I, I like I like I still like the business. I like the management. I think it's something I'm happy to hold for now. And I, I'm not eager I'm not looking to sort of sell it and put it into something else that's potentially a better opportunity. This is like a I do that. I mean everything else in my portfolio I'm looking to it to be as high uh, I want to see really good return potentials and a good much larger sort of short term returns perhaps like I've got companies in there like Warner Brothers Discovery potentially um, Samero potentially is a fast grower you know Taylor Maritime that are trading they're either trading at a really massive discount sort of like their uh, what I could say there easily there that they're short term they could get a short term boost from them maybe you could see a double in just a few years um, with those kind of stocks or certainly outsized returns anyway above my sort of well above my 15% in the short term um, and those are sort of like what I'm looking for generally but it's nice to just have these kind of cheaply valued quality stalwarts in there as well to give you that sort of backbone and it's you know they're still cheap they're still giving me the 15% a year don't get me wrong I don't want to I'm not looking to to buy a Unilever or something that's going to pay me I'm going to pay 20 times or 30 times or whatever it is now um, that's not what I'm looking for here but yeah I think Aviva is like that nice kind of middle ground still cheap giving me a, a potential for 15% or more a year in returns but um, yeah there's not a crazy not crazily discounted at the current price from it's not like that crazy potential for a boost in the in the short term it's not going to double for instance in the next year or two like some of the others are but Anyway, yeah, that's that's pretty much it for for Aviva. I mean, this is a company, like I say, a, a really solid one. I really like, and I think it's it's one that's going to be, you know, it's been around for three hundred years. It could comfortably be around for, you know, another century beyond here. I think. I don't think the life insurance business is something that's going to disappear as long as humans don't become immortal. But even even then, you've still got the uh, the potential for, you know, you still have all these other these factors to consider in the general insurance segment and so on and it's a business that's adapted and I think um, you know they're going to maybe pivot more they've got this opportunity now with the bulk purchase annuity legal and general is already a market leader in that has been that they make most of their income from that now I think so I think I could see Aviva expanding out into that pulling up getting some more of that trade but yeah it's, it's much more diversified than some of the other but obviously still a lot of life insurance but I mean it's not crucially in just like one segment of life insurance like um legal in general for instance is very concentrated in the bulk purchase annuity and viva's much more in the individual annuity and uh, and so on but yeah it's a solid business i really like it um and yeah it's uh it's got a a nice slot in my portfolio but yeah if you want to read this report like i say i'll put the the link below in the in the show notes but um you've also got yeah, if you just want to have a look on the firmreturns.com website you can find it on there and um, yeah and I mean follow me on Twitter as well for future releases and so on subscribe to the newsletter it's uh, to the firmreturns.com you can you can subscribe there to the newsletter and get these kind of things straight in your inbox um, yeah uh, thanks a lot for listening everyone I'll, uh, I'll see you in the next one